0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, June eleventh, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. This month marks 10 years since the 2005 Kilo decision that specifically allowed eminent domain for the sole purpose of economic development. In other words, more tax revenue. Scott Bullock of the Institute for Justice argued unsuccessfully on behalf of Suzette Kilo before the Supreme Court. He provides a brief update on the state of eminent domain since that decision. Forty-five states passed some kind of reform. How many of those were, in your view, substantive reform?
1: Uh, yeah, 45 states uh, passed uh, reform. A total of 47 states did some type of change to their laws, either through legislation, constitutional amendment, or through favorable court decisions as well, which is another encouraging aspect uh, of the kilo fallout, is that most state Supreme Courts went in the opposite direction uh, as the, than the US Supreme Court did. Uh, I would say in about half of those states, there was a quite meaningful reform. Uh, And in the other half, they ranged from uh, not very effective reform at all to middling reform. Uh, But in almost all instances, the uh, state of play for property owners was improved. And in about half of those reform states, we actually got more out of the legislation or the favorable court decisions then we would have out of a win in the kilo case. And that was one of the things we were concerned about in Kelo is that even if we would have won the case, it would have been a very narrow decision probably 5-4 the opposite uh, direction. It might have been limited to its facts. There would have been not too much public knowledge or outrage about the decision and things might have continued on uh, maybe not exactly the way they were before, but a lot of this would have been going on because Governments would have started using their blight laws, which were which was not at issue in the Kelo case, and we might be having a conversation now, 10 years out, people saying. I thought you would solve this problem in the Kelo case, and it's still rampant as well. So in about half the states that reformed laws, they actually ended up changing their blight laws. So uh, that was something that really put very significant limits on, on eminent domain and something that we would not have even gotten out of a favorable ruling in Kelo.
0: Ilya Soman wants to draw this uh, bright line between what is a public use and maybe clarify what, what that means uh, in court and a private use and in the discussion about uh, what those things mean today the, your opponent in the kilo case said don't worry so much about that what we need is uh, a sliding scale where we where we judge uh, projects uh, whether or not they're legitimate public uses etc cetera, etc cetera. but don't draw this bright line between uh, uh, public use and and private use, because in many cases he argues there's re- there's a it's a distinction without a difference. Well, I obviously disagree with that. I think eminent domain, the eminent domain power,
1: the public use clause, is a provision of the Constitution that actually is one that is fairly easy to figure out. It provides some substance uh, in a way that certain other provisions that we take very seriously, like due process or equal protection or uh, uh, reasonable searches and seizures where you can have a big debate about where those lines are actually drawn with public use most people know and, and there's a history of this as to what that actually means it is broader than just simply public ownership of property, but public use means something um, where the public has an equal right of access to the property. So that's why utilities are public uses, railroads are public uses, because everybody has the right to use the the, the public transportation to use the utility line. Um, Obviously, a big box retail store is not a public use. A private condominium is not a a, a a a public use. A lifestyle center, which is a very uh, something that was very popular uh, to condemn for in uh, the 1990s and 2000, is not a public use. So uh, there's going to be some tough calls on the margins, as Professor Richard Epstein says. Ninety percent in the law is perfection. Uh, there could be tough calls on things like stadiums. Uh, there's tougher. Uh, it could be a tough call on something like a private toll road uh, as well. Yeah. <laughs> But there are methods of analyzing that. And courts have looked at those types of projects to see, is it really a public use? Or is this what we're really talking about is just benefiting a particular uh, private party? Courts have the mechanisms to do that. The problem with eminent domain for so many years is that courts didn't do any of that analysis. And under Kelo, they're still not really doing any of that analysis. They simply rubber stamped whatever the government wanted to do at the very least, and some of the reform states do that, even if they don't ban uh, uh, private use takings entirely, say, we are going to more carefully scrutinize these takings to really figure out what is going on here, and that's a step forward.
0: Do courts build in any revisiting of projects that eventually don't produce the things that people promise, or is it just, this is out of our hands, and we've decided this case, so what eventually does actually happen is... Uh, irrelevant. Because I'm thinking of Suzette Kilo specifically. She knew she wanted to keep her house, and on the other side of it, you have essentially governments speculating about economic activity to come after their project is completed. And doing speculative real estate deals, which is always a a very
1: risky proposition. There's a lot of money to be made in real estate. Look around D.C. A lot of of buildings are named after uh, very wealthy real estate developers. The reason for that is because it's a very risky endeavor. If you're successful, you can make a lot of money on it. But Oftentimes, real estate uh, ventures fail, though, as well. And why should pu- uh, public uh, dollars be put in such highly speculative um, uh, ventures? Uh, the point is is that uh, the courts really can't do anything after the fact. Um, there's been some talk in legislation of allowing property owners who had their property taken for uh, private development projects if they're not successful to buy back some of the land uh, after a certain period of time and to repurchase it uh, as well but that's extremely difficult uh, to do Um, and it's yet another problem with having these takings in the first place is because all the government needs to do is just project they can say well We project that this new project, like in New London, will create anywhere from 1,200 to 2,500 jobs, anywhere from $800,000 to over $2 million in tax revenue. And those are just simply projections. And the courts will say, well, that sounds like a public use. And if it doesn't come to pass, There's really no recourse for the property owner. So it's yet another reason why a bright line should be drawn and that the government uh, should not be allowed to team up with private developers in order to do these types of private takings.
0: Ilya Soman points out in his book that there's a great reason to be happy if you're uh, dealing with the legal academy because what once was sort of a monolithic opinion about – takings under eminent domain is now a joined debate.
1: Yes, there's no question that even members of the Academy, which are one of the few holdouts uh, among people that uh, still are pretty supportive of, of eminent domain, at least recognize there's there's a debate uh, about it, and that's certainly progress. And definitely among members of the public, too. People are informed about this, energized about it. And one of the things we uh, saw in the wake of Kilo was not only the uh, state court decisions, we and others have been able to secure the legislative changes uh, and and changes to this uh, const- uh, the state constitutions, but we've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of projects defeated because people uh, were able to get mobilized and uh, get uh, involved in in these projects, and speak out against them, and let people know, hey, remember what happened to the woman and the other uh, people up in New London? That's happening here in our neighborhood, and we've got to put a stop to it. And so it energized so many people to get involved. It intimidated a lot of politicians because they knew how wildly unpopular it was. and it also caused a lot of private interest to back off as well, since they knew what terrible publicity it was going to ensue. So that's yet another great legacy of the of the kilo backlash is that it allowed people, not only enlightened people in the academy, but also just you know a, a, a small business owner or homeowner to recognize that you can fight these um, battles and actually win.
0: One of the things that Roger Pollan noted was that the. When you talk about fair market value, you're presuming that the owner would accept that, but they clearly wouldn't because right. it's not on the market. That's exactly right.
1: Yeah, and so that's that's yet another unfair aspect of, of, of eminent domain is if your home's not for sale, then you're not interested in the fair market value of it. But that's all the government and developers have to pay under eminent domain. That's why they love it. They get land on the cheap. They don't have to sit down with somebody and say, what's it going to take to get you to sell your property? How about I give you double the appraised value of the property or triple the appraised value of the property? Uh, That is something that is just not available when the government has the power of, of eminent domain and people are not able to engage in those types of uh, those types of good faith and fair negotiations
0: scott bullock is a senior attorney at the institute for justice you can watch or listen to a conference held today on the kilo case at our website cato.org